No one prepares you for what it's like to be separated. It's a strange sort of no man's land. Or no woman's land. Neither married nor single. Neither royal nor normal. Those mythological creatures, half woman, half bird. In one minute you're flying high, the centre of attention, and the next thing you're down to earth with a bump. Not even a bump, a crash. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the podcast that follows the fifth season of the Netflix series The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. It's time to focus on episode seven, titled No Woman's Land. Diana is left isolated and lonely after her separation from Charles and William leaving home to start school at Eton. Her paranoia continues to escalate and a journalist with a plan is fanning the flames. But will she find her freedom in her relationship with Hasnat Khan or by trusting Martin Bashir to expose her version of events to the world? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't watched episode 7 yet, I suggest you might go and do it now or soon. Coming up on the podcast, I'll speak to director Eric Richterstrand about introducing the controversial panorama story. The idea was to portray what happened, how it may have happened and what effect it had on Diana and the entire country. We'll hear from the Crown's costume designers on Diana's style out of the spotlight. I think getting to do that was really exciting because you don't see that version of her that much, other than when she did it herself. Mm -hmm. And Head of Research Annie Salzberger will give us the real history of Diana's relationship with Dr Hasnat Khan. It gets to the point where she's considering moving so they can have a life together and he really thinks like the only place we can move where no one's going to bother us is Pakistan. And she even went to Pakistan, possibly without his knowledge, to meet his mum. But first, it's time to meet the phenomenal actor playing Princess Diana in this season, Elizabeth Debicki. In the first of two conversations with Elizabeth in this episode, I met up with her very fresh from filming on set at Elstree Studios. And this was her first interview about the role. We sat down on the very comfortable couches in her Kensington Palace apartment set. Elizabeth, thank you for... It's weird because we're in your drawing room. Yeah. It's weird for you. It is so weird for me and invasive. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I really do feel strange being here in these clothes and other people. I sort of feel like I have to protect my parrots. Look at those parrots <laughs> the over parrots there. on the mantelpiece I'm are so phenomenal. fond of them. Do you have names for them? No, I don't. But I'm not one of those people that names everything. There's another parrot there and it's got a candelabra a sticking out of it. Yeah. Thank you for chatting to us. And um, I've been lucky enough to see a couple of episodes of the new season of The Crown. Congratulations. 
And now I'm nervous. <laughs> don't be, <laughs> don't be. Um, do you mind going back though and talking to me about what was the attraction to, to this project? My love of The Crown was very kind of organic because um, one of my dearly beloved friends, Vanessa Kirby, plays Princess Margaret in season one and two. And so I remember way back when I was young, that she kept talking about the show The Crown. And I remember sitting down to watch the first episode. I remember just being so proud of her. And and she was in this huge, lush thing. And it looked amazing. It was so gorgeous to look at. And it was so lavish. And she was so good. And so I always had this really sort of strong emotional connection to it. I also thought it was kind of revolutionary thing because... We've obviously seen a lot of period dramas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I love that genre so much, but there was something new about what this did because it was so vivid and it had this kind of modernity to it, I guess. And so it really drew me in. And I also thought the performances were incredible. So, how did the role present itself to you? So, it's a kind of a funny story. Well, I don't know if it's funny that I actually went into audition for. I never told anyone this. I went into audition for another role and I did that audition and thought it, I w- it was terrible. I thought I'd blown it. But I think that was the beginning of my relationship to Diana because I think whatever happened in that audition wow. um, kind of sparked something in their minds. Did you speak to Vanessa about it then when, when it came back round? I think I called New when they said, come in for this small part. And I was like, it's your show. <laughs> I don't think I can do it. You know, I hung out. <laughs> yeah, but I can finally see you if I get this part. Um, you know, I remember she was probably like, go do it. You know, it'll be fine. And thank God I did, to be honest. Wow, lovely then that she appears in this season as well then. That's so nice. The only time we ever see each other is in <laughs> film world. <laughs> Well, from that experience, I guess, from the from the fact that you know you know the show, hmm. but what was your experience of coming to be a main character on this? I always trusted that it was going to be like a family, and that by the time I came to do this season, that it was such a, a incredibly well oiled machine to step onto with people who really know what they're doing. Yeah. When you come to make something, your first experience of what the show is actually usually comes from your hair and makeup designer and your costume designer. Yeah. Because they're the first artists that you're sort of going to bump up against and have the big conversations with. The, the first time sometimes that you let yourself investigate something fully might be in the makeup chair. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I was really fortunate, super fortunate that I had such sensitive and incredibly talented artists Kate Hall who is the hair and makeup designer my makeup artist Debbie and Sid and Amy who are this phenomenal team costume designing and Jess Hobbs who was directing one and two and so I was very held thank what goodness. a team yeah well I mean what a ferocious team yeah yeah one of the other amazing collaborators is finding voice and movement as mm. well mm. with things how important was that side dialect and movement is fascinating and can be kind of terrifying and also can be frustrating and then you can have these breakthroughs and for me it's so muscular dialect because you're literally sort of training your mouth to move in a really different way and I've had experiences with dialect where you sort of feel like you can't do this simple thing and it can be this incredibly infuriating (laughs) moment and I had this a few times with Diana really early on with, with dialect where I would be sitting on a kitchen chair not moving my body at all, looking at a, a screen, working through vowels, and, and I would be sweating, just sweating, <laughs> sitting still, because of this 
incredible <laughs> concentration it was taking for me to connect all these new dots in terms of being able to sort of achieve just in a muscular sense this accent that was very very different from my own and sits in a completely different place and also it's again it's the first time you take a step in towards becoming this person and there is a pressure there I think dialect wise and movement wise you know that people know what they sound like and you know that people know how they move and it's a really important puzzle piece to sort of get inside of hello darling Hi, Mum. How are you? Um, yeah, okay. You're settling in all right. You're getting help with your collar. The studs are impossible to do up. I don't want you choking yourself. It's fine. I've, I've gotten used to it. What are the other boys like? Have you made any friends? One or two. That's all you've got to say. Talk to me a bit. You miss me? Yeah. I miss you terribly. My wise monosyllabic owl. With Diana, there's so much expectation. We know the world loved her going into this. Do you try and leave all that kind of aside? Because you are, you're an actor, you're playing a character, Mm. but she's still there. She's still obviously, you know, Mm. part of what you are playing was a real person. The answer in a way is quite simple, which is what I discovered, which was kind of also a relief to discover, which was that we're doing Peter's version. And I remember in the beginning, before I had a script, feeling that sense of awareness being enormous, you know, the scope of how much should I know, how much Mm -hmm. should you research, how much should you look at. And then came the script into my lap and I felt uh, I felt like I landed somewhere on a map, I suppose, and you think, this is the blueprint. These are the boxes I now unpack. They're the ones that he's sort of put here for me to look through. And so that's the guide, really. How would you describe her journey in this season? Gosh, that's a big question. There is something undeniably triumphant In a way, it's a small and quiet and very human triumph. But it's one of survival, and not just survival, but of a real evolution into becoming the person that you need to be for yourself. We'll hear more from Elizabeth later in the podcast. But first... Let's focus in on episode seven of season five, No Woman's Land, which is very significant in Diana's journey this season. I spoke with director Eric Richter-Strand. It's an episode that very much centres on Diana and how she, in the fall of 1995, met Martin Bashir and was ensnared into agreeing to doing an interview which would later come back to haunt her and become quite infamous. At the same time, the episode also deals with how she meets another man, Hasnat Khan, uh, a potential love interest and someone she grew very fond of. So it's both these two storylines come from her sense of loneliness, hence the title, The No Woman's Land, her finding herself in this middle role where she's neither royal nor normal or personal Mm. or private and trying to just cope with that and being uh, in that part of her life a very easy prey for someone who comes in and tries to manipulate her. Was it hard to remove your own opinions about particularly how that interview came about? You know, there's 
since it happened, obviously there's been, in the last couple of years, there's been investigations done on what went on at that time. But is it hard to kind of remove your own personal opinion about things like that when you're working out how to portray that within the the show? Not really difficult because, yes, you're right. I mean, actually this script was written while the Dyson report was still being commissioned or still being presented. Yeah. And it hadn't yet been presented, I think, when the first versions of the script came out. So the script was following a line of reasoning that turned out to be uh, validated in a yeah. way by the Dyson Report when it came out. And we, we learned that we could probably go even further with it. But the idea was that to portray what happened, how it may have happened, and what effect it had on Diana and the entire country. Mm. The trick is you don't want to just make... Martin Bashir into a villain who you cannot sympathize with. You have to try to create a version of both Martin Bashir and Diana that you can both sympathize with. You can sympathize with both of them in the situation that they find themselves in. You know, there's some things in there that I find are essential in order for us to be able to understand that it wasn't just some evil man trying to do some evil things. My brother told me about your conversation, which confirmed what I think. Mm -hmm. Strange clicks on my phone. Things that I've said that then appear in the press, things that no one could possibly know about unless they've been listening in. So who do you think's been listening in? Police and security services. Forces loyal to the royal family. And why do you think they would do that? Because they see her as a threat. Because of her power, because of her popularity. And perhaps even because of what you know. Believe me, I know everything. You mentioned there when we were talking about where we find in this episode and loneliness being a word that you used. In terms of reflecting that on screen, there's different levels of depth there for people who want to kind of go further into it. Is that something that you enjoy doing of kind of, yes, there's everything here on the surface that tells you what's going on and it's entertainment, but if you kind of look further and deeper into it, there are other things there for you to to find. Absolutely. I'm glad you see it that way. And that's intentional for sure. There are scenes in there that aren't necessarily telling you what to think or mm-hmm. interpret, whether it's just you're just watching someone being in a room or sitting on the side of a swimming pool or putting on makeup or just where you can project your own emotions or your own interpretations onto what you're watching. And um, if I have an extra 10 minutes to film something, I'll always try to find a place to put the actor where I've got good light and I've got a good situation and just try to film a situation where they are simply being themselves in a room. Yeah. Because that comes in so extremely handy in situations where you where you need that moment of reflection and where you need that moment of contrasting something that you just cut from. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really glad we did the swimming pool sequences where we're underwater with Diana, where there's voiceover right at the beginning of the episode when she talks about being in this no woman's land. And also the ensuing scene where she's in this slightly abstract dressing room with lots of mirrors going back a hundred mirrors and then she's putting on makeup and thinking some of those scenes I'm very happy with because I feel like they say a thousand words without saying any Can we talk about Humayun Saeed who plays Dr. Haznat Khan Um, a beautiful actor and a beautiful performance and this just kind of tender reaction to this woman who's who's interested in him really yeah, it's she makes she, do, a, yeah, she doesn't she, hide it. No. No, she comes right out and sort of says it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I didn't know Humayun Said until I started doing the 
casting for this episode and I understood early on that he was a major star in Pakistan. He's also a producer. He owns his own production company. He's a he's a major player oh, in, wow. and he's very famous. So I was very excited when I auditioned him and I saw exactly what you described, that vulnerability, that ability to just completely be blank in one moment and then react with a very sort of finely tuned human mm. vulnerability that comes across very beautifully as Hasnat Khan. Because I think... That is what Diana saw in Hasnat Khan, a real person, someone who didn't approach her as Her Royal Highness, but someone who was simply just a man that she could talk to and, and who eventually fell in love with her for who she was. There's a lovely scene where she first sees him and it's just Elizabeth's perception and tone. You gave her so much time to play it and react to it. And sometimes it's uh, the hand over the mouth mm. at times and leans into things or an eye movement or the head dip. I wondered if there was a, a conversation about that as well. You know, nothing's rushed with her. And that really gives you a sense of of kind of Diana's movements and her confidence, I think, in a way at times. Yeah, Elizabeth's sense of timing as an actor is really strong. This scene that you mentioned when they're at the hospital... A lot of her job is to listen mm. because Hasnat Khan comes in and he has this very slightly technical monologue really about the operation that just had to go through. So she's just watching him. So I really enjoy that camera move where you start with the two of them, Diana and her friend Una. And as we realize that she's looking at him, we gently push in and remove Una from the frame and we end up in a close-up on just Diana who's looking, sort of batting her eyelids as his yeah. handsome doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that because it tells you everything you need to know. And then yeah. when he's delivered this quite tragic news, at the end of which he says goodbye and, and she smiles at him in a way that's like she's obviously yeah. quite smitten with him. And I, yeah. I love the way she played that. And yeah, it's just about giving her time and... But if you if you look at that scene, there are hardly any cuts in it. On on her performance, we stay very much focused on what she delivered on the day. Quite dishy, wasn't it? Who? Dr. Khan. His name was on his shoes. I didn't see his shoes. You're looking at his eyes. No. His eyes were gorgeous. Warm. Kind. Hands were nice too. The only thing that interests me about that man's hands is that they don't shake when holding a knife. Mm. Time to get our research fixed for this episode as we ask Head of Research Annie Salzberger the big question. Who was Hasnat Khan? Hasnat Khan was a heart surgeon. He was born in Pakistan, but had trained all over, including Australia. And he, at this point in September 1995, is a surgeon at the Royal Brompton Hospital. He's part of the team that performs a triple bypass on the husband of Diana's acupuncturist. As we know by this point, Diana's friends are mostly people who help care for her. So acupuncturist, spiritual advisors, things like that. There are complications and they have to sort of rush Joseph Tuffalo, this husband, back into surgery. And when he comes back in, Diana's there. And Hasnat is filling Una Tuffalo, the wife, in on what's gone on with her husband. And supposedly Diana just says, isn't he drop-dead gorgeous? And she becomes sort of infatuated from that moment. And she starts hanging out at the Royal Brompton Hospital every day. 
And it's in this period that she gets this reputation as an ambulance chaser in the news. Because they don't know why she's there all the time. She shows up at night when she doesn't have royal duties of any kind. And she spends a lot of time at Joseph Tuffalo's recovery bedside. And then she starts going room to room and just saying, like, can I do anything? This is all just to be near Hasnat. And again, a lot of people are rather taken with this, but also many are questioning, why are you here? We haven't asked you to come in. And she's just sort of by everyone's bedside to get more time with him. So finally, he gets the nerve to ask her out. Uh, It's a bit of an odd first date. He asks her if she wants to come with him to his uncle's house in Stratford-upon-Avon to pick up some books. She says yes, and they start a relationship that lasts 18 months. It's a very long time. She's very serious about him. I think she definitely falls in love. She goes out loads with disguises, wigs. They go to jazz clubs, to the pub. And it becomes really clear to Hasnat that... He can't live a life under that kind of public scrutiny. A lot of people know there's an inkling to what's going on, but they're really cautious about being seen together. And it gets to the point where she's considering moving so they can have a life together. And he really thinks, like, the only place we can move where no one's going to bother us is Pakistan. And she even went to Pakistan, possibly without his knowledge, to meet his mom. Although in the end, it was Diana who broke it off, that's according to Hasnat himself, fundamentally... You know, we think he probably felt like, however much we love each other, is this really possible for us to pull off? Because I would like to lead a normal life where I can go into my hospital and not be hounded. He's very private. One of the only bits of information we had from him was the inquest testimony he gave in 2008 into the crash. So he was called to testify just about the nature of their relationship at that point. He said that they hadn't really talked seriously about marriage, but that she liked the idea and had wanted to have another child. We have to remember she's only 36 when she dies, so the chance of a second family is very real. And that's one of the rare times he has said anything. He's only ever come out when misreportings have taken place. Hi. I just wanted to say thank you for what you've been doing. All I do is talk to them and keep them company. It's nothing compared to what you do. I just do the technical part. I can't do the miraculous part. Make people feel happy, give them joy. What you do is entirely miraculous. I'm just a friendly slow ranger. Nice seeing you again. Yes, and you. If you've listened to the show before, you'll know that I'm obsessed with the costumes of The Crown. So I was delighted to sit down with costume designer Amy Roberts and associate designer and head buyer Sidoni Roberts to dive into the royal wardrobe for season five. Let's talk a little bit about specifically, you know, designing the costumes for this season. Where did you start? You know, we talked quite a lot about colour palettes and that defining the period for the last season. So what was the kind of starting point for this season? I think it's probably the same. The same impetus is there, isn't it? So yeah. Obviously reading the brilliant scripts and then looking at what they actually wore, mm. we get these mood boards up in our studio mm. and then we know what they're looking like and their shapes. It's always a little bit difficult, I think, when you've got a new group of actors. Right, because that was the difference this year. Makes yeah. a big difference. Yeah, absolutely right. Kind of tonally where they're coming from Mm -hmm. I think there's a melancholy about this season so I suppose then that 
automatically leads you into a palette of slightly more mm. subtle colours. Yeah, I think looking at the characters individually and then how they come together as a whole, but it's the individual kind of character and human that we do their journey separately. Where are these kind of pointers where everybody knows what they wear then? They, in a way, helped the palette because they were more subdued. So actually this year, doing that, kind of mapping that journey and going where should we do a more similar mm. interpretation of something that they wore, that kind of helps dictate that even further I would say yeah and we always get together I was thinking about this this morning we get yeah. together for big sessions we're in doing it now aren't we for our final yeah. season yeah working on what we call the bibles and we look at each character's scenes and for us the exciting thing is when you've got a group of them together yeah and where can mm. we accentuate that and we mm. have a lot of fun with mm. the two sisters yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we found yeah. that really yeah. exciting didn't we with Imelda yeah. and Leslie Margaret and Elizabeth we had this extraordinary thing that happened last season where Sid designed a range of prints so we used those prints so there's a scene with the two sisters and they're actually in the same prints but in slightly different colorways oh wow so me and Rachel Taylor, who actually works in the um, workroom, we had lockdown, so we thought, what else, what can we do? So we designed a collection of fabrics. Amazing. Um, and then kind of, originally for us, and then we... And I we, said, no, no, me, me, yeah. us, the crown. <laughs> Amy went, what about the crown, please? Yes, yes, so please, we did, so. and one of them, this one in particular that Amy's talking about is Quince's. And, Autumnal. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Queen wears one and it's on like a cotton jacquard and then Margaret's one is on silk and it's a pussy bow and it's it's yeah. that what we know of Margaret and it's olive greens and it's richer and it's and then Queen wears a slightly more demure version of that print in different colours that go with her palette. I think we sort of suggest it'd be nice if they have it chair as well but I think I oh, we always want much. to get that in there cushions, cushions. Chairs. <laughs> season three we had this incredible upholstery fabric that we ended up making Margaret a dress in and you can use it on both sides and one was blue with brown on the flowers and the other way was brown with blue flowers oh that was and the hell in the bottom yeah and we thought wouldn't it couldn't it? she have like a little poof that she puts her legs <laughs> yeah. up on in the other way of the fabric the amount of freedom on this program and creative freedom Mm. It's quite phenomenal. Mm. We're, we're really, I must remember that on a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm shouting you a bad Michael mate. Casey. <laughs> I wanted to pick your brains about your neighbour. Which one? The Kensington Palace one has so many. <laughs> the troublesome one. That doesn't narrow it down. The illustrious one? The ever so slightly unstable one? Ah, that neighbour. You know what I think with Diana mm -hmm. and what I always think was the biggest, because basically Sid did Diana, mm -hmm. I had very little to do with Diana, was the story Peter's telling is not a public Diana, is it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What have you got? Maybe three 
Oh, OK, the hospital bits. Mm. But very, mm. very few public views of Diana. Mm. Yeah. So mm. it's all her in her Kensington Palace apartment lurking about. Mm. It's all cloak and dagger, this one, isn't it? You know, she's paranoid, she's... And it was like over to you, Sid, where you had to find what is she going to be lurking about in her flat in? And you're quite young as well, Sid, in terms of that's really interesting that you did Diana. You've got less of a... Conscious, a conscious kind of memory of, of yeah, of which her. I think makes it really healthy. And I do wonder. I was going to say, I do wonder if that's healthier. I think me not knowing it in a kind of conscious memory. I wasn't. I mean, I was alive when she died, but I wasn't alive to know kind of what she was wearing and stuff. I think that that probably is an advantage. Yeah, because it means that I can just look at reference images and, and, and think about her slightly differently, I think. Yeah. And also, as Amy was saying, it's like, what is her equivalent of a tracksuit? What's her equivalent of something that me and you would probably lounge about at home in? What is that for her? Mm. So I think getting to do that was really exciting because you don't see that version of her that much other than when she did it herself. Mm-hmm. Were there pieces that were... Or things that were almost a constant for Elizabeth and for your your version of Diana? That I think privately, yes. There were her security blankets, which for her became her Harvard jumpers and her Virgin Atlantic. So we chose to actually have them in private spaces as well, though we know them very publicly. Yeah. When we were speaking earlier about what's her version of a tracksuit, and it's those, and the sleeveless cashmere polo necks but the hospital yeah that was interesting because there's a real kind of contrast between what's happening for her and how we costume her privately and there where she's still making an effort and she always says especially in the hospital we read didn't we that she when she was doing anything like that she would dress in bright colours that was a very conscious choice for her Mm. when she's around children or people that aren't very well to make yourself seen and visible to people but what was interesting about that is not all those hospital scenes were public so in the story it's that she goes and there's no press So we had a conversation actually with Eric, the director of that, because in those moments we could have actually put her in slightly more private outfits. But it felt important to tell that story and also to have that contrast between the public and the private and her still making an effort for these people and cheering them up. For one thing, I get very little time off. Not even for the cinema on a Friday night? Cinema? I, I can't remember the last time. Is there even a film you'd like to see? Um, Apollo 13. Then let's go. You can't go to the cinema. You're the most recognizable woman in the world. It would cause a public disorder incident. Trust me, I've done it before. It's great in episode seven because there's real contrast to Diana's image. You know, we have that public face inside. We have those moments. Mm. But we also have private and then we have Diana in disguise. Right, the cloaks and daggers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was that fun to play with, with Elizabeth, in terms of what would the character choose to yeah. have as her disguise? How we work is I'll say, 
this is how I see this story. This is like, and I always say to you, oh, it's like a detective novel, this bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then you run with that. Yeah. That and part the hats in particular. And yeah. the sunglasses and the coats. Yeah. So she did wear these big coats, and so we thought we would use those in all of these moments. So dark colours, big coats, they're so like big, cloaks, so it's cloaks and daggers. Absolutely, mm. it was kind of literal in that sense. Mm. And wigs. And wigs, yeah, wigs. The big black wig, the black bob at the cinema. Yeah, like what do you do to disguise yourself? Mm. Also, what I think is always very funny about celebrities is when they try and disguise themselves. It sometimes draws more attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> but in this sense, I think we just went, yeah, dark, didn't we, with Bashir as well. What about the Dior handbag? <laughs> the Dior handbag. The Dior handbag is the Dior handbag. <laughs> but it's like, thank it's you, just thank you, Dior. It's like a sword. It's, it's like a shield. But yeah, but, it's it's a shield. Get, but that's it again. It's a coat, isn't it? Like it's, it's an yeah. outerwear that you can put on. Yeah. The decision to keep her in that red puffer jacket when she goes and sees her brother. Yeah. Which feels completely. Um, Barmy to have that in that apartment and then she's got that red coat on but again that's her shield well it says so much because it's kind of like i'm not staying yeah exactly well, you know? yeah and the hat at this point she's so wildly hounded by paparazzi so it's anything that she can do shades i don't think it's even any more about disguising yourself so you don't know it's her which in the cinema it was because she went one step further and had a wig on but I think in terms of Paps, it's just anything that means they're not going to see her vulnerably at this point, mm. right? Hiding. Rather than going, oh, it's not Diana, look at me, it's not Diana. It's just going, you get to see less of me. This is all I'm going to give you. I'm putting shades on so you don't know what my eyes are saying. Putting a hat on. So I think it's, for her, less about making herself look less like Diana, but more about, okay, you're going to hound me anyway, so I'm only going to give you this much. I think that the obvious conversations for people are around the females in yeah. the show, you yeah. know, because yeah. it's such an obvious yeah. visual thing. But with the male costumes and clothes, they're more subtle, but they are still driving the narrative and telling us things mm. about those characters. I mean, Prince Philip. I just wanted him to look as he did, which was always spot on to the point where you didn't, you don't notice it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the slightly longer mm. line of the jacket. You know those men that are completely at ease with themselves, they just put it on and go, yeah. don't think about it. Yeah. I think that, I always felt that, I mean, Philip was like sensational, I think. Well, I think that's lovely what you just said. Spot on so you don't notice it, because that's exactly it. what it feels. You know, we're all talking about our designs and the costumes and the fabrics. There are also major pluses when we're dealing with a working class character. Uh, yeah. And that, we both believe, is as paramount to get that right as it is to get the Queen right, isn't it? Or Diana. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the thrill of getting that right. Because mm. obviously we've done it for a long time now. It's exciting when, uh, with what you were saying also about Diana when something is slightly unexpected or something comes into the crown that it's exciting to do because it looks at kind of the society at the Social, time and politics yeah. and all of that. Mm. And when that's brought mm. in, it's these little yeah. vignettes of something just 
unexpected coming in. And it pushes you in a different way. Yeah. You, you know, it's not all glam and handbags. Yeah. And yeah, and in a way, again, that's got, with you can't Diana. Take your eye off the no. Board, can you? And with Diana, I think what's so exciting about this season is it's less of those frocks or those suits, the Chanel suits, the Givenchy suits. It's that loungewear. Yeah. And I think that's why it's come back in fashion because it is just really cool. <laughs> Somebody else asked me, why do we think she's such a fashion icon? Why, did, why has that led through? And I think it's because something that happened where she got her own personal identity is she kind of oscillates between worlds. She's both elegant, she's sexy, she's cool. She enables herself to be different versions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important for young women, today, well, women in general, but young women today, to be able to not just be pigeonholed into one style, one idea of what a woman should be, but you can be multiple things. You can have, yeah, multiple versions of yourself and, and express that in clothes. I'm worried you think I'm this huge thing. This great big glamorous celestial thing to be scared of. You are? No, I'm not. I'm no one anymore. Really, I'm no one. I have nothing. No real friends. No purpose. No role. No family. You forget I already had a prince. He broke my heart. Just looking for a frog to make me happy. You've already heard a conversation I had with Elizabeth Debicki about taking on the role of Diana in this season. And I was thrilled to catch up with Elizabeth once again after everything was finished. And having spoken to Sid and Amy, I wanted to get Elizabeth's perspective on working with them and taking on Diana's iconic style. From the second that we started working together, I knew we were really aiming for the same thing, which was... The thing that we loved so much about Diana was the fact that, and the thing that I, make, I think makes her so iconic and that women love so much about the way she dressed and her wardrobe was that you always got a sense that she made the decisions herself and that's what's so yeah. vivid and sexy and empowering and great. And so Sid and I were always really drawn to the outfits that sort of no one else ever could pull off and no one ever had tried. And, you know, I, I remember saying to Sid really early on, I just love everything. I just love the sweatpants and the cowboy boots. We have to get to... And she was like, that's, that's all I really care about, you know. And then I think what's funny about iconic Diana outfits is it's often when that spillover happens in public and we just loved it so yeah. much, you know. When you, you got the sense that she just woke up and she's like screw it I'm wearing this to school you know? <laughs> yeah yeah totally and, and that's the stuff that we love and I think it's good it gets recreated so much and she is even if you look at trends now as well it's almost yeah. a lot of it's come in full circle like yeah. the the um, the cycling shorts and the oversized oh, cycling uh, blazer that. okay, that's one thing I can't do <laughs> <laughs> sweatpants and cowboy boots yes yeah yeah. Oh, yeah yeah cycling shorts now okay yeah. shame oh, well. we had a pair of salmon <laughs> cycling shorts that used to just Ooh. stare at me on the on the rack every time I went into the fitting and Sid would just hold them up like one day you know and because I was not fulfilling any kind of regular training schedule. 
um, due to my total exhaustion and lack of time. <laughs> I used to just look at them and think, oh my God, one day I'm going to have to put those on. And then God or the universe, something, did not want me to wear them because it was the one day we had that insane storm. Do you remember we had that yeah. insane storm? Mm-hmm. And that was the day I was supposed to wear those salmon, <laughs> salmon pink. Pack. Yeah. And then they were like, listen, we got this big email like sent out to everyone like, we can't do today, but everybody stay inside. And all I was thinking about was those salmon cycling shots. I thought, oh my God, thank God. I was saved. <laughs> Apart from the uh, sweats and cowboy boots, yeah. favourite outfit? Well, sweats and cowboy boots, but also <laughs> revenge dress. Yes. <gasps> revenge dress and the was a whole thing for me. Yeah. Well, it was very... It was sort of very kind of surreal because we were also there, you know. It That really kind of affected me quite deeply in the aftermath, even just to see that dress on a hanger because there's so much attached to it. It's become this real symbol of, you know, I think for women that's a really important dress. Actually, when I got the role, I remember so many people saying, congratulations, revenge dress, exclamation, exclamation, you know. I was like, really? <laughs> My God, you know, I didn't know you knew that much about Princess Diana. But, yeah, um, yeah it's sort of iconic for people. Mm. I guess because it symbolized, what we like to think it symbolized was, I guess, sort of phoenix rising out of yeah. scrappy, painful ashes, you know. <laughs> By the time we get to episode seven, No Woman's Land, she's been on a a huge journey, even, you know, in this season up to that point. Where would you say we find Diana in this episode? The way I always felt playing it and reading it was that she's very suspended, trapped in a way between two almost like timelines or realities. There's a sort of a past life and incarnation of herself, which was once upon a time full of assumptions. This was how you are and this is how you behave and this is what you adhere to and these are the rules and this is what makes sense. This is what we're collectively aiming for. And then that is in the process of being dismantled and sort of shattered. Mm -hmm. And then I always felt that when you are in those places in your life, there has to be a degree of hope that you're moving towards something that feels more authentically yourself or that has more joy in it or is has a kind of freedom in it, but she's not there yet. It's that sort of thing where you get a slight sort of a whisper of kind of what her life could have been in a way, you know, in terms of she's, I know, in a way seeking that perfect life that she wanted, that she saw in her eyes of family and her kids and mm. I don't know there's there's always a sort of sadness there in a mm. way as well and she starts to you know just this paranoia starts to kind of bubble around finding those people in her life that she mm. can trust finding mm. those people that she can confide in mm. and it's really reiterated within the the show I think of how isolated she was how lonely mm. she was mm. in terms of there are very few of those people around mm-hmm. and finding that as a performance must have been hard and and exhausting, I imagine, as well. Mm, mm. Yeah, it was. It was a very, I guess it sounds simplistic, but a very lonely place to exist in psychologically, portraying this moment in her life as Peter has written it. And I think, like you said, you know, in order to be a human being that is capable of sort of feeling secure and feeling peaceful and and being open-hearted and you need trust in your life. Mm. You know, it's something we all know and acknowledge. 
But I feel like the story we told was a sense of, of it being something coming to get her, you know, a toppling of something because the sort of status quo had been breached and she felt that they really saw her as a problem. And I think that when you internalise that, the next step onwards is that you then feel like you should be punished somehow yeah. or something's sort of going to come for you, you yeah, know, and I think, you, yeah. I think it makes sense when you think of those sort of psychological steps that that's where you end up in your head. You know, I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes in life when you're experiencing anxiety, there can be that sense of something's wrong. It's sort of an unnameable wrong and you look to locate it somewhere in your life, you know, and I, I think that that's sort of what was happening. But then I think it's also important to remember that, you know, when you live your life in the public eye in such an extreme way, feeling encroached upon and feeling invaded is already a part of your yeah. psychological existence. Mm -hmm. And then I also think the thing that Peter's written in those moments with Diana that is so sad was that you stop trusting yourself and knowing what's real too. Yeah. And that I think is what made it such a lonely place to play because that's a real kind of yeah, whirlwind, sort of destructive feeling of, of really not knowing what's real anymore and, and knowing that you know something and everybody around you telling you that you're wrong, you know, that's yeah. obviously very dismantling. I know what it's like to be disparaged and persecuted. What it feels like to be an outsider in one of Britain's most cherished institutions. But if they think they can intimidate us, They've got another thing coming. You don't know what it means to me. To be understood. And finally have someone on my side. So long, I wanted people to know the truth about what it's been like to be part of this family. The sheer loneliness of it. I didn't know who I could tell or who I could trust. You watch the show as well and it's because you know the outcome of so many of these situations and with the Panorama um, interview, you get so angry about it, about the manipulation that was put into towards her agreeing to do it and particularly in hindsight what we know now with with events that have unfolded over the last year or so as well mm. makes me even angrier. Mm. What do you think were the reasons from Peter's Diana of agreeing to do it? Why do you think she did it? I think in our telling, it's a kind of battlefield, the way that Peter's written it. It really is a sort of media battlefield. Yeah. The desire to sort of just control that for a second and tell people how difficult things have been in the yeah. hope that they may be a sort of shift of empathy that would allow her to sort of proceed with, with more freedom, really. Yeah. We know the, the kind of romantic nature of her and we get a real kind of lovely glimpse of her dating, you know, kind of putting herself out there and having the confidence to just go, let's go to the cinema, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And it's a really nice side. And I'm really glad that Peter's chosen to 
show that side of her. You know, it's really important that we have light and shades mm. with her, particularly because we know the outcome of this real character. Mm. But to show these kind of little moments of her being allowed to be normal. Mm. Was that important for you to yeah. have those moments? Yeah. I mean, it was also important for me as an actor to sort of have moments where you can really have levity. Mm. My theory is that there's it's just a tremendously good sense of humour in that human and that she was really funny and <laughs> silly and the kind of person you absolutely, I always say this, you would absolutely want to hang out, you know, have over for dinner and just bring a kind of real sense of like play. Yeah. And so I looked for that as much as I could, I think. And then there were these outright moments where that could exist yeah, I just loved, I love playing that. I love the idea of going, well. going to the cinema in fancy dress, or not in fancy dress, but in disguise. <laughs> Which apparently she did do. I think there was a story of her going to Ronnie Scott's in a wig. It's great. And sort of, and sometimes going to Tesco's or, I don't know if she went to Tesco's, Sainsbury's, I don't know, Waitrose <laughs> in a wig. Waitrose girl, yeah. <laughs> in a wig. Littles. <laughs> I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Elizabeth Debicki, Eric Richter-Strand, Annie Salzberger, Amy Roberts, and Sidonie Roberts. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode eight of season five, called Gunpowder. Monarchy and media collide when bosses at the BBC wrestle with the ethics and politics of Martin Bashir's Royal Panorama Scoop as he doubles down on his deception to secure Diana's trust. But will this explosive broadcast be worth the risk? Well, explain something to me. She could go anywhere in the world with this. How did she get her to do it with you? It's not with me, though, is it? It's the BBC. She's doing it with us because she feels safe, understood and protected. He's being modest, it is Martin too, when he, when he puts his mind to something. He can be very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, give me a day or two. I need to think about it. About what? about the ethics of giving a national platform to someone with such a personal agenda. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.